Want to go ahead and read the thing? Oh, yeah. In 1999, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, along with the Organization of Lesbian and Gay Architects and Designers, applied to the state to add a seven-acre site in the West Village to the National Register of Historic Places. The application passed with unanimous approval, and the site, which included a small park and three city blocks, joined 70,000 others on the National Register of Historic Places. A year later, the same site was designated a National Historic Landmark, joining 2,500 buildings, shipwrecks, and archaeological sites. In 2015, following a spike in local property values, a building within the site was proposed for inclusion in New York's Landmark Preservation Program to protect it from development. The building, a 100-year-old, slightly dumpy former stable with a red brick facade and arched entryways, passed onto the list with unanimous approval of the Landmark Preservation Commission. Quote, it ain't a pretty building, end quote, Commissioner Michael Devonshire remarked before voting yes. It might not be dripping in curb appeal, but for generations of LGBTQ plus New Yorkers, this little building represents the turning point in the long and ongoing struggle for equality, recognition, and safety. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1969 Stonewall Inn Riot. Uh, thank you so much, Greg. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, morality advisor for the Relative Disasters lobbying firm. And I'm her brother Greg, vice president of liquor license distribution for Relative Disasters Bar and Grill Conglomerate. Our main sources for this episode are Remembering Stonewall, which is a StoryCorps recording, The Stonewall Riots, which is a book by Mark Stein, The Stonewall Inn page on www.nyclgbtsites.org, okay. and a couple articles from the New York Historical Society website. And again, this is a listener suggestion from Wally. Thanks, Wally. Thank you, Wally. Before we get started, I just wanted to acknowledge we're going to be discussing a historical event that touches on intersecting issues of sexuality, gender, race, and class. Yeah. The riot itself takes place within a much more complex context than we usually try and tackle during our yep. little <laughs> one-hour podcast. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to do my best to tell you exactly what happened, who the major players were, and the long-term results of the Stonewall yeah. riot. Uh, I just want to give you two notes. First, two weeks of research is not nearly enough to get at a full understanding of the, what is it we say at the beginning, the context and implications? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is more like a cliff notes. It's a condensed overview. And I really recommend sure. that you take a look at the show notes for some more in-depth and frankly, much better informed scholarship sure. around the riot. Uh, and second, I want to point out the disaster here is not the riot itself. No. Right. The disaster is really the two decades of systemic legislated oppression and criminalization of gay, bisexual, transgender and gender nonconforming Americans. The yep. Stonewall riot is actually more of a it's not so much a disaster as the kind of natural result of an unequal and unfair system kind of collapsing in unto itself. Yeah. 
That's a good way to put it. I would like to begin by telling you about the kind of systemic discrimination that gay Americans were facing, specifically in the late 1940s through the end of the 1960s. So I know you know, in a general sense, there was discrimination against gay people. But I want to be specific about how homosexuality was in general thought about in this time, because this is something you need to understand in order to understand why Stonewall happened. Yeah. Uh, just bear with me. This is really depressing. We'll oh, hit the high point. it sucks. So historically, there's just this general kind of othering and discrimination against homosexuality that becomes much, much worse in the late 1940s and early 50s. And it's spurred on by our old friend and special disaster unto himself. Joseph McCarthy. You know Joseph McCarthy. I I know way too much about Joseph McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy, there was a historian who once basically said that no one has done more damage to the American system of democracy than Joe McCarthy. Like everything bad that you can think of about the American system, this guy found a way to exploit or make just objectively worse. he's, He's the worst. He's the worst. He's very special in a bad way. Uh, McCarthy was on the hunt for communists specifically at this time. Well, he was on the hunt for political enemies that he could name as communists, and that way he could increase his own, you know, okay. standing. And yeah, right, but his branding not actually give any credence to this idiot. <laughs> his branding was communism. <laughs> yes, yes. There you go. Uh, and this kind of got the government thinking about all the kinds of un-American, that's in air quotes. Uh, oh, gigantic tell, air quotes. <laughs> Un-American people that we might have in this country. Yeah. So they were originally looking at communists, socialists, and anarchists, and mm-hmm. that kind of snowballs into sexuality. Okay. Uh, okay, so what we're talking about is the U.S. government in the form of the FBI and the State Department saying that if you're gay, you cannot serve in the military. You cannot right. be trusted, right? You can't hold a government job. Yep. You certainly can't teach because... Oh, no. Won't no. somebody think of the children? Right, exactly. Uh, And the worst thing, not the worst thing, but the thing they really don't want you doing is socializing with other un-American, air quotes, types, (laughs) because who knows what will happen if you are all allowed to gather in a group and compare experiences. They thought that if if all these groups that they deliberately marginalize and suppress and oppress got together, oh, I see. No, actually, they're kind of right. Right? I cannot overstate how invasive and oh God. Yeah. un-American this government interest was. Oh, so yeah. if your name turns up on the FBI's watch list, you could expect to be followed. You could expect your mail to be opened, your friends yep. to join you on that list. Yep. And this was made more acceptable when, in 1952, the American Psychiatric Association included homosexuality as a mental disorder in the first yep. publication of their Diagnostics and Statistical Manual. Yeah. The APA classified homosexuality as a sexual deviation within the larger umbrella of sociopathic personality disturbance. So that's fun. So that's <laughs> horrible. Yeah. Yeah, just just, just uh, completely, yes. This classification is what fuels all kinds of law and legislation designed sure. to make gay people's lives as miserable as possible. Yeah. Okay, so a sodomy law relates to any sexual act the state has decided is a crime that falls outside of actual sex crimes, such as rape and sexual exploitation. 
So sodomy right. laws are where we get laws outlying sex acts between consenting adults. Uh, if you're wondering how serious these laws are. Yeah. Right. The answer is not very. They're no. very rarely enforced. But the penalties range from jail time to hard labor to castration to death. Yeah. You know. In 1962, 10 years after the American Psychiatric Association decided that same-sex attraction was a mental disorder related to mm -hmm. sociopathy, the Moral Penal Code came along to rethink and update sodomy laws. we got to keep up with the times. Yes. I just want you to picture any body of legislators <laughs> meeting. They have their suits on. They have their shoes shined. They have their notepads, their glasses yep. of water. Oh. And they are discussing what kind of sex acts are immoral and should be mm -hmm. illegal and what yeah. kind of sex acts are okay. There's a part of me that really wants to be in that room. And then there's a part of me that just really wants to run screaming from that room. You know, I have to imagine it's beyond depressing. <laughs> beyond. <laughs> Someone brought their Bible. They're flipping through this the Old the, Testament. The evil of banality is what this <laughs> is. Somebody else is completely checked out and reading the paper. Yeah, it's it's got to be a <laughs> it's got to be a fun time. Oh yeah. So what they're trying to decide is criminality of sex acts between same-sex partners and sex acts between married and unmarried heterosexual couples. Sure. So nine states use the Moral Penal Code to write legislation where the law is only enforceable in regards to homosexual relationships. So with this kind of legal framework in place, State governments are using it to do things like declare a gay parent unfit to have custody of their children or tell a company that it's okay to fire someone from a job if it came to light that they were in or had been in a same-sex relationship. Yep. Most troublingly, sodomy laws allowed courts to deny equal treatment of gay and straight Americans, including protection from hate crimes. Yep. Which, again, objectively wrong, bad, I would argue, extremely un-American, since the U.S. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court has upheld the right to privacy over and over again in multiple decisions. And the U.S. Constitution explicitly says in the 14th Amendment, all citizens are afforded equal protection of the law. Yeah. So if you draw a line from McCarthy to the DSM to the Moral Penal Code, you're heading directly away from not just what common sense and a regular conscience would tell you is moral and correct but away from the values of equality and justice the country was founded on. These laws are terrible. Yeah, I mean, this They're is just... blatantly unconstitutional, <laughs> but, you know, what are you Bad, bad, do? bad, bad, bad. Yeah. Um, and they are enforced with a lot of energy and enthusiasm in various oh, yeah. jurisdictions throughout the 1960s. Sure. Now, at the same time, there are organizations who are trying to get these laws repealed. By the mid-1960s, there are 50 or 60 of them across the country, and they're active. So yeah. they work on projects like education, legal assistance, social unity, and they protest. Um, a lot of their protesting strategies come from the successful civil rights protests that are going on mm -hmm. in the South at the same time. Yep. Uh, these are known as the homophile organizations. Yes. Homophiles, as opposed to homophobics. Exactly, the opposite yeah. of homophobic. Yeah. Um, and they are routinely harassed viciously. Oh, yeah. You have to be incredibly brave to have your name on a door yeah. of the office of the New York Medicine Society, which is who we're going to yeah. talk about next. 
Uh, they decided what they were going to do was challenge the discriminatory practice of New York bars, where the state liquor authority has a regulation against serving gay customers on the grounds yes. that they are disorderly. See the moral <laughs> penal code, see the DSM. Yep. You can be raided for serving gay customers and you can be shut down. You can use, you yep. can lose your liquor license because the state That's liquor right. authority will say, uh-uh. So for this protest, basically, three Mattachine members walk into a bar, which I know sounds like the beginning of a joke. It's not. Uh, they told the bartender they were gay, and they ordered drinks. Hello, I'm gay. I'd like a drink. Right. And the press is yep. there. Like, they brought reporters with them. Sure, yeah. Uh, there's a great photo of the bartender slapping his hand down over the glasses. Yeah, well. And these are middle-aged white men. These oh, yeah. These are not... These are not young radicals here. These are Their point is we're not that different from exactly. the status quo. So that's exactly. what they're trying to prove. There's no difference between a gay person drinking in a bar and a straight person drinking in a bar. Exactly. They're just they're equally as likely to <laughs> become disorderly. <laughs> I feel like we should approach all of these this way, you know, just is everybody going to be an idiot under these circumstances? Okay, let it go. There should anyway. be we should really be looking at idiocy before we look at sexuality, like way before, 10 oh, steps God, before. Yes. Tell me about your bad decisions. I don't care about your sexuality. Tell me I don't about care about the your last sexuality. You when you got I don't care how many guns you own. I don't care where you stand on abortion rights. Just tell me the dumbest decisions you've made in your life. And how and long we'll, ago was that? And how long ago was that? Exactly. <laughs> and we'll just work backwards from there. Like that, that seems like a decent basis. Uh, so the bar refuses to serve them, and the Mattachine Society gets the support of the ACLU. They yep. sue the state liquor authority for discrimination, which, yep. come on. I mean, that's a slam dunk. <laughs> the Commission on Human Rights actually gets involved, and the upshot yep. is that the court decides it is not, in fact, constitutional to deny service to bar patrons for being gay. It's not what the Founding Fathers would have wanted. Well, golly. Interesting. <laughs> So this decision doesn't change anything about New York's sodomy laws, but since sure. that protest, which they called a sip-in, which I love. Yeah, I love that. That's uh, The police weren't really able to arrest you on disorderly charges if you were not actually disorderly. Those darn harassment things, they just, they make it harder to harass people. It's so nuanced. There's so many gray areas. <laughs> uh, maybe we just shouldn't be harassing people. Okay. And, well, hey, now that's communist talk. But if you were gay and drinking in a bar, the thing you had to remember was that you needed to wear clothing that matched with the oh, gender listed sake. on your yep. ID. Yep. Okay, the Mattachine Society knew this. It's the suits. It's the suits. And that brings us to the loitering laws, which are specifically Yay. designed to discriminate against gender nonconforming people. So loitering laws are laws against lingering in a public area without any apparent purpose. That's a that's a quote. Golly, that seems kind of broad. Which I love because I'm such a space cadet. <laughs> I wander around. I stare in shop windows for too long. I make eye contact with people and then don't look away. I just am yep. the worst at this. I linger yep. in public places without any apparent purpose. Uh, it's my favorite thing to do. Uh, in New York, the penal clothes... The penal codes under loitering include what kind of clothes were illegal for you to wear as you lingered somewhere. 
And that just must gonna... have been another fun meeting. Just a bunch <laughs> of middle-aged white guys with notepads going, well, can they wear this? Can they wear this? Now is a muumuu considered a dress? A muumuu is sheer comfort and it should be available to anyone. This is the hill I will die exactly. on. Exactly. No, I'm with you. I'm with you on this. Yes. There is no gender to muumuus. No gender to muumuus whatsoever. I've never, you know, I should get a muumuu. I, I lack, I lack, uh... Listeners, I will be setting up a GoFundMe. It's going to be called Greg's <laughs> Moomoo Fund. I expect you all to generate donuts. Donate oh generously. Mm. Or generate donuts, whichever. I am just going to drop a little quote in here from what has to be one of the most ridiculous laws ever written. This is Yay. section 240.35, part four of the New York State Penal Code. Quote, oh, a person is guilty of loitering when he, being masked or in any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural attire or facial alterations, loiters, remains, or congregates in a public place with other persons so masked or disguised, or knowingly permits or aids persons so masked or disguised to congregate in a public place, end quote. Wow. A little vague. That took him all day, didn't it? Don't love the language. Uh, this is the law that the police are using to arrest anyone wearing gender non-conforming clothing. Sure. And I know you're picturing drag queens who are definitely part of this scene and are definitely getting arrested under this law. But they're sure, also but... using it to arrest women who are appearing in public wearing less than three pieces of feminine clothing. Oh, sure. So the vice squad employed female officers specifically yeah. to perform what they called anatomical inspections, which is exactly yep. what it sounds like. Yep. And then from there, they would decide if you were dressed appropriately. If you were you were a criminal, you could be arrested for loitering mm -hmm. inside your own clothing. Yes. I just want to follow that up with a quote from Sylvia Rivera, an activist and drag queen who was a frequent customer of the Stonewall Inn. Quote, okay. we used to sit around and just try to figure out when this harassment would come to an end. And we always would dream that one day it would come to an end. And we prayed and we looked for it. We wanted to be human beings. End quote. That's so upsetting. It hits me right in the feeling. Well, that's the essence of othering people is you, you, you know that what you are doing is wrong. So you have to reduce them to something that is not human so that you can do it and tell yourself you're still doing something that is okay and, and morally something you can live with. And that's and unbelievable. It's just so upsetting that this pivots on clothing. Like, like, what is more human than being able to wake up in the morning, pick out clothing that's going to work for your day, and yeah. put it on your body and go out into the world? In Greenwich Village in Harlem, neighborhoods with many LGBTQ plus residents, there yep. were a number of bars that catered to a gay, lesbian, gender nonconforming, and transgender clientele. Yeah. This is despite the fact that in addition to the sodomy laws and the loitering laws, there are still these city ordinances that prohibit solicitation. And they're not talking necessarily about explicitly arranging for sex work, right? Uh, offering to buy someone a drink or starting a conversation also mm -hmm. counts as mm -hmm. uh, solicitation. Did you uh, did you come across these uh, sting operations that they'd run? These I'm sorry, I shouldn't say sting, entrapment operations that they'd run? Yeah, I read across I have... them in the context that this is one thing the Mattachine Society was really trying to wipe uh -huh. out. It's just so bad. It's okay. So one of I have I have two favorites. Can I can I take a moment and share them because they're both favorites just really in stupid. what sense, Greg? Favorites in like these are the worst and dumbest. And are you kidding me? This was a law at one point in time. All right, I will so, allow that. 
clang. It's hilarious. So, <laughs> so one of them was that uh, if you were a man and you went to a bar mm-hmm. and uh, another man offered to buy you a drink mm-hmm. um, and you said, yeah, sure, why not? Free beer. Uh, that other man then turns out to be an undercover police officer and arrests you for soliciting. My second least favorite one uh-huh. uh, was they would send these vice cops to the gym. And at the gym, they would actively proposition people. And if the people made any sort of acknowledgement, they didn't even have to say, oh, sure, yeah, let's go have sex. They would just be like, um, okay, bud, boom, you're arrested. Uh, there was a specific case cited where it was a, a, a police officer who was undercover, went mm-hmm. into a gym, grabbed his genitals and began to howl in pain as though injured. When another man came over to assist him, because he was, again, howling in pain as if injured, uh, that man was promptly arrested for solicitation. Okay, so even following the 1966 SIP-IN lawsuit, the State Liquor Association was still free to revoke or, you know, like they, they have absolute discretion to... They could pull your liquor license for any reason they want. Yeah, yeah. Um, and any bar that they felt might be, quote-unquote, immoral... <laughs> Now, hold on. How do you define a moral bar? No, no, no. How do you, how does the State Liquor Association, who is in the business of serving alcohol and making a lot of money off of it. Yeah. How do they get to decide what's moral and immoral? I mean, it it seems, it seems a little suspect to me, but again, as I said in the, in the onset here, I'm not an expert. That's true. If you understand this, please write in and educate us. Um, It does not sound, it does not sound right to me. That's true. That's true. Um, I think the overarching lesson here is that we cannot have alcohol in the hands of people who might use it to flirt with somebody that Joseph McCarthy would not want them to flirt with. Won't someone please think of the McCarthys? Yeah. Instead of the children. So if you add this system to the daily harassment, slander, and violence towards the LGBTQ plus community, you kind of force the system into place where the only place to freely socialize, um, that place becomes a bar selling drinks without a liquor license that the police know about and raid as often as they feel like, because it's an easy way to get arrests. Now, you might wonder who's running these bars, paying off the police, and buying the under-the-counter booze. Surprise! Oh. It's not the LGBTQ plus community. It's nope. the mafia. Yep. It, it really rose out of the, the natural evolution of the prohibition system because they already had all these underground illegal channels for alcohol anyway. So they right. just Why adapted not them? them to modern use. Yeah. Now that alcohol is legal? Now that alcohol is legal again, but serving it to a certain subsect of people is not, really. There's money to be made, said the mafia. There's money to be made. We're talking specifically about the Genovese crime family, which during the 1950s and 60s were also selling drugs, loan sharking, running protection rackets, stealing, murdering, and worst of all, Greg, Mm. prepare yourself. They were not paying taxes. Ooh, Mm -hmm. that's a big one. Uh, They owned a lot of gay clubs in New York, including the Stonewall Inn, and their job was to supply liquor and pay the police to tip them off about the raids. Yeah. They also probably blackmailed customers who were not out. Yeah. So, great guys. Uh, This is definitely who you want running your (laughs) social outlet. (laughs) Yeah, this this is where you go to strike a blow for liberty, folks. 
Uh, as a patron, by the way, your job was to pay way too much for bad drinks. Oh, yeah. um, you had to be over 18, which was the legal drinking age, and you had to not make any trouble during a raid because that is right. bad for business. Yep. So if you got raided, your job was to stand there, be quiet, give them your ID, get arrested, go home, and, uh, and, and not give anybody any trouble. Right. The Stonewall Inn building itself is lovingly described as a dump. <laughs> so in our little intro piece, <laughs> yep. like people remark on how ugly this building is. It's not hideous. Oh, yeah. It's just it's, not yeah. spectacular. It's just not like, beautiful. Yeah. Architecturally, there is nothing interesting about it. Um, sure. <laughs> these days, it's like really well taken care of. Um, and in the 60s, it was really gross looking it was a dump yeah uh so it is on the first floor of this little two-story building it's right around the corner from the village voice office so it's like right in the heart of greenwich village the west village yep uh the bar itself is small it has a capacity for about 185 patrons and five employees there are two bars and two like lounge rooms they have these tiny bathrooms which were probably gross and there are no fire exits I mean, and at this sure. time, the windows are also boarded over and painted black. <laughs> so we're yeah. not talking about an inviting, hospitable village tavern with its doors thrown open and yep. uh, not not the most welcoming place. You are not allowed to solicit for sex work inside the stone wall, but you are allowed to dance, which is the second most scandalous Ooh. thing the owners could think of. Ooh. And let's get into what happened at Stonewall Inn on the night of June 28th, 1969. Around one o'clock that night, the New York City Police's vice squad, specifically, <laughs> this cracks me up, the public morals squad. <laughs> yeah. Would you not love to be a cop on the public morals squad? No, not at I all. I would Are you walk me? around all day going, moral, not moral, moral, <laughs> not moral. <laughs> so the public morals squad raided the Stonewall Inn. Stonewall Inn, I forgot to mention earlier, is on this tiny little short street, Christopher Street, which also has a lot of nightlife. It has several clubs and restaurants, uh, most much fancier than the Stonewall Inn. It has residential buildings and it has a little park. So on this night, for some reason, it was much busier than usual. There were lots of people on the street. So the person in charge of the raid was a deputy inspector named Seymour Pine. Yeah. He's around 50 years old. Yep. Um, he's a military veteran. He has a long and unremarkable career in the police. Seymour Pine justifies these raids to himself as a hit against organized crime and sex work, which are sure. real problems in New York City at this time. Yeah. He's there ostensibly to shut the club down for selling liquor without a license and arrest club employees and arrest loiterers. Yep. Seymour Pine has arrested hundreds of people for this over the course of his career. But almost from the minute his officers start lining people up and demanding IDs, this night is a little different. Yeah, the vibes were off. The vibe is not (laughs) as it usually (laughs) is. Yep. Here is a quote from an address he gave in 2004 about that night. Quote, Sure. We had a couple of transvestites who gave us a lot of flack. They were very noisy that night, acting up. Get your hands off me. Don't touch me. End quote. So there are about 200 people inside the bar at this point. Which is over capacity. Violation of fire code, yeah. I want people arrested for the fire code. I don't care about anything else. It gives me, you know how I am about fire codes. Yes. It it makes me want to scream. Uh, That's not what Seymour Pine screams about. 
So the street is full of onlookers, it's a hot night, and people have just had it with this whole system. So almost yep. from the minute Seymour Pine walks in with his warrant, things go sideways for him. Yeah. Patrons refuse to hand over their IDs. They refuse to submit to anatomical inspections. Mm-hmm. They make fun of the police. They laugh yes. at them. They don't, they don't take that well. When one of the officers goes to arrest a drag king and neighborhood icon named Stormy Delarvery, Stormy decides to fight back. And she yep. escapes from the police several times as they are beating her. She's in handcuffs yep. and trying to get her into the paddy wagon. Yeah. At one point, she turns to the crowd, which is by now hundreds of people, and yells, why don't you guys do something? Yeah. And this is the point where the crowd gets violent. This is the point where the crowd actually goes, you know what? Why don't we do something? Uh, the police, it should be said, were already kicking, groping, pushing, and beating patrons inside the Stonewall Inn. The more yeah. people resisted arrest, like Stormy, the larger and louder the conflict became. And in between the crowd outside and the people inside the club, Seymour Pine and the, I think it's either eight or ten moral squad yep. officers, they're pretty quickly in a spot where they just have no control. And they have to respond by barricading themselves inside yeah. the club to wait for backup, which took two hours to reach them because the mob in the street were throwing bricks and beer bottles at the police. And pennies. Uh, and pennies, mm-hmm. linking arms and forming kick lines ahead of the riot yep. squad. <laughs> Which is my favorite part of this whole thing. It's a beautiful image. And they're it's also setting image. fire in the streets. Less of a beautiful image, but you know what? Sometimes you got to get people's attention. So the tactical police force, which is the backup for this project, yep. they're using batons to beat their way through the crowd, and they are, by witness accounts, astonished, humiliated, and furious as they do yeah. so. A witness named Michael Fader said this about the riot, quote, We all had a collective feeling like we had enough of this kind of shit. It wasn't anything tangible. Anybody said to anything else. It was just kind of like everything over the years had come to a head on that one particular night in that one particular place. And it was not an organized demonstration. Everyone in the crowd felt like they were never going to go back. It was the last straw. It was time to reclaim something that had always been taken from us. All kinds of people, all different reasons. But mostly it was total outrage, anger, sorrow, everything combined, and everything just kind of ran its course. It was the police who were doing most of the destruction. We were really trying to get back in and break free. And we felt that we had freedom at last, or freedom to at least show that we demanded freedom. We weren't going to be walking meekly in the night and letting them shove us around. It's like standing your ground for the first time and in a really strong way, and that's what caught the police by surprise. There was something in the air, freedom a long time overdue, and we're going to fight for it. It took different forms, but the bottom line was, we weren't going to go away. And we didn't. End quote. Yeah. I think the thing that strikes me about this so much mm-hmm. is the fact that it was not in any way organized. Like, they didn't plan this. It was just this outburst of, we have had enough. Right. It's a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, absolutely. That disruption was caused without any, you know, without any leaders, without any platform, yep. without any organization whatsoever. Just stop hitting us, please. This is enough. <laughs> We're not going to be doing this anymore. Yep. <laughs> uh, over the next six days and nights, protests continued outside the Stonewall Inn, up and down Christopher Street, and in the park. On the nights after this first riot, the police are present in huge numbers. They're pulling from oh, precincts yeah. all over the city. Yeah, it, the numbers are crazy. 
Um, and the protests do turn violent on a few of those days. There are more sure. fires. There's more damage to the street. Um, there's damage to police equipment. And oh. there's a lot of graffiti. During that week, the Village Voice published a pair of articles. So mm. I'm just going to read you some quotes. One okay. was by reporter Howard Smith, and it described his experience inside the Stonewall Inn on the night of the first raid. That piece is called Full Moon Over the Stonewall. I'm going to read you a little quote. This is Howard Smith, the reporter, trapped inside the bar with Seymour Pine as the mob outside is smashing windows and shouting. Quote, Pine glances over towards me. Are you all right, Howard? I can't believe what I'm saying. I'd feel a lot better with a gun. I can only see the arm at the window. It squirts a liquid into the room and a flaring match follows. Pine is not more than 10 feet away. He aims his gun at the figures. He doesn't fire. The sound of sirens coincides with the whoosh of flames when the lighter fluid was thrown. Later, Pine tells me he didn't shoot because he heard the sirens in time and felt no need to kill someone if help was arriving. That was close. End quote. That is how close it came to turning really, really dangerous. Oh, I just want to tell you, nobody was killed during any of these riots. Um, it's kind of like what we talked about on Disco Demolition Night. There was absolutely the potential for mass fatalities. Yeah. It did not happen, thankfully. Um, there were a few minor injuries. Uh, the second article is called Gay Power Comes to Sheridan Square. Great headline. Yes, The writer is. is Lucian Truscott the Fourth, and this is about the energy on Christopher Street as people organize for protests on the second day. So this is when, like, leadership is starting to emerge. Um, sure. Flyers yeah. are starting to get printed. People are starting yeah. to really organize make signs and make kind of gather of in the moment. streets yeah yep. quote alan ginsburg and taylor mead walked by to see what was happening and were filled in on the previous evening's activities by some of the gay activists gay power isn't that great alan said we're one of the largest minorities in the country 10 percent, you know it's about time we did something to assert ourselves ginsburg expressed a desire to visit the stone wall you know i've never been in there and ambled on down the street, flashing peace signs and helloing the TPF. It was a relief and kind of a joy to see him on the street. He lent an extra umbrella of serenity to the scene with his laughter and quiet commentary on consciousness, gay power as the new movement, and the various implications of what had happened. End quote. I just love the image of Allen Ginsberg Allen saying Ginsburg. hi to the police yep. as, he, yep. <laughs> as he heads out to get a beer. Allen Ginsberg is not the only influential person to take an interest in the Stonewall riot and join the protests, yep. and Stormy DeLarvery is not the only gender nonconforming person to stand up and demand support. I would like to introduce you now to Marsha P. Johnson. Yay! Uh, Marsha P. Johnson. The P, by the way, stands for pay it no mind. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Ugh. Uh, she was raised in a conservative Christian household in New Jersey. After finishing high school, she moved to Greenwich Village, where she made a living as a sex worker and as a performer, so as a drag queen. Yep. Having experienced homelessness and knowing how difficult it was to survive in the city as a gender nonconforming person and a person of color, she became a mentor to LGBTQ plus young people, particularly those experiencing homelessness and social isolation. Uh, she was known for creating fabulous outfits on a budget of nothing. Uh, she knows everybody in this neighborhood. Yeah. One of her nicknames is the mayor of Christopher Street. Yep. 
She is impossible to miss in a crowd. A lot of people describe her personality as magnetic, which you can mm -hmm. see even from pictures and the few videos that exist of her. Yeah. Uh, when Stonewall begins, Marsha P. Johnson is involved from the second or third day on. Yep. So she's marching, she's giving interviews, she's writing, she's pushing back against the police, and she definitely smashed a windshield on a police car. When the Stonewall protests died out on the sixth day, Marsha continued to fight to be included in what was shaping up to be the gay liberation movement. Yes. She did this by speaking, writing, marching, and advocating, like, and ceaselessly. Like, the energy yeah. she spent on doing this is incredible. So a year after the riots, she and her friend and mentee Sylvia Rivera, another gender nonconforming activist drag queen, they formed a group called STAR, which stands for Street Transvestite Activist Revolutionaries. Yep. The purpose of STAR is to provide home and support to LGBTQ plus youth and educating them on the need for change and their right to be included in this kind of larger social change going on that the Stonewall Inn had kind of kicked off. Yeah. This is incredibly important because as yeah. the gay rights movement gains momentum through the early 1970s, it falls upon these conservative and politically focused groups like the Mattachine Society, like the Mattachines, um, yep. which we discussed earlier, because they had this kind of political framework in place. They had the visibility. Yeah. They had the newspapers and the voice uh, with that kind of leading the charge. Yeah. The movement becomes more cisgender. It becomes like middle class and white. And some yep. of the group felt like including transgender and gender nonconforming people really hurt their cause. Like it hurt them politically. Sure. Their whole fight was we are regular average Americans. We're not that different. When you add transgender and gender nonconforming people into that mix, it was perceived as like a greater ask for yeah. people in the Medellin society. And I think a lot of, a lot of, gay activists who had been active um, up through the 1950s and the 1960s. They're like, we're making progress. We don't want to risk it. Don't rock the boat. And Marsha P. Johnson was like, hello. <laughs> nope. Nope. We're rocking it. <laughs> we need it. to do this together, guys. Otherwise, yep. it's not going to work. Yep. Um, so Star and other activist groups served to remind people that the transgender and gender nonconforming people deserved a place in that movement as well. The famous example is that the organizers of the first Pride Parade in 1970 didn't want transgender people or people dressed in gender nonconforming clothing. They did not want right. those people marching with them. So right. Star and their supporters formed their own group. They got their own marching <laughs> permit and they just started a half an hour earlier than the main group, which, which I is That's the play. Yeah, that's what you do right there. You're like, oh, oh, we can't march with you. Cool. You get to follow us then. Simple, effective and brilliant. Uh, uh -huh. Marsha P. Johnson, Star, and Sylvia Rivera are the reason why we have the T in LGBTQ. Damn right. And Stonewall is why in the U.S. we have Pride Month. So it's yep. actually a commemoration of the riots. And its purpose is to recognize and appreciate the enormous positive impact that LGBTQ plus people have had and continue to have in our country. So Stonewall is often pointed at as a catalyst. It's this big event that ushered in lasting positive change in yep. equal rights and acceptance. And there are certainly some things we can point to that did make huge improvements following the riots. In 1973, the American Association of, Psychi of Psychiatrists 
removes homosexuality from the DSM, uh, deciding it's not a mental disorder after all. Oops. Sorry, guys. Openly gay politicians run for office in the late 70s and are elected. Local jurisdictions repeal and rewrite their sodomy and loitering laws so that gender and sexuality do not figure into the language. Other places scrap the laws altogether, noting correctly that they are outdated. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We are modern people. We do not need to be interested in anyone else's. (laughs) To figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's weird. It's weird. We don't need to be doing that. I don't want Joe McCarthy to visit me and look at Well. I think it would be fun. I think we'd have a great talk, but uh, I can I can see you. You're a little more patient than I. Yep. In the late 1970s, San Francisco politician Harvey Milk, an openly gay man, sponsors a bill banning discrimination on basis of sexual orientation and housing, employment, and public accommodations in the city, which passed almost unanimously. (laughs) So So all of that one guy. Yep. All of that is great progress and. We are happy to see that. However, I should also point out yeah. that Harvey Milk was assassinated immediately after that bill passed. Yeah. Uh, Marsha P. Johnson was murdered in 1992 during an uptick in anti-LGBTQ violence in New York City. Yeah. That case was never solved. No. And although we now have legislation allowing same-sex marriage in all 50 U.S. states and all territories, except, yeah. strangely, American Samoa. I don't know what's going on there. That's weird. Um, it took us until 2015 to get there. Yeah. Well, you know, 2015 is almost 50 years after Stonewall. Like I said, we don't do we don't do fast change very well. No, we sure don't. Uh, and it took longer until 2017 to decide that adoption by gay and lesbian parents was legal everywhere in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 16 states still have sodomy laws. As late as 1997, police in Rhode Island arrested two adult men for having a consensual sexual relationship inside their own home. So, not great. Not great. I just also want to uh, follow that up with, as of 2021, only two U.S. senators are openly gay. We have to point out, although government and legislation has moved away from that kind of McCarthy-era thinking of homosexuality as a national security risk, We're not even close to true everyday acceptance and equality. However, change is possible. I want to end on a hopeful note. So I want to tell you about Seymour Pine, the head of the moral squad that raided the the Stonewall Inn. Yep. He actually retired seven years after Stonewall in 1976. And between his participation in the Stonewall riot and his death in 2010, he thought deeply on his role. Yeah. Here's a quote from his obituary. Quote, in 2004, Inspector Inspector Pine spoke during a discussion of the Stonewall Uprising at the New York Historical Society. At the time of the raid, he said, the police certainly were prejudiced against gays, but had no idea what gay people were about. When somebody in the audience said Inspector Pine should apologize for the raid, he did. End quote. Yeah. It did take until 2019 for the NYPD to issue an official apology. Yeah. Uh, up, you know, even as late as 2017, they were being asked for an apology and saying things like, that was a long time yeah. ago. It's a long time ago, guys. Just let it go. Times have yeah. changed. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Seymour Pine was ahead of his time. Yes, he was. And I am very glad that they did finally apologize. 
The same obituary ends with a quote Pine gave David Carter, who wrote a book called Stonewall, The Riots That Sparked the Gay Revolution. Towards the end of his life, Pine told Carter, if what I did helped gay people, I'm glad. And that's the story of the Stonewall Riots. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or, if you'd like to shame us publicly, and we know you do, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion, and please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. For some reason, I let my brother select our next disaster. (laughs) (laughs) I'm all researched out. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, you know, we've gotten a uh, a little bit of feedback lately that we we haven't had enough Canadian content. You know, I I've been I've been digging into this thing and I really really want to uh to have you join me next week where we talk about uh something that happened in Ottawa in 1929 uh when their sewer exploded. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I thought you said a sewer exploded. I, I did, yes. A sewer exploded. Okay. Uh, nightmare material. I will be thinking about that all next week. Mm-hmm. This is the part where I'm supposed to say I can't wait to discuss that with you, but... I think, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you can wait. I think I think you're going to wait. <laughs> I think I'll have a light lunch, and uh, <laughs> then we can discuss. <laughs> no, actually, that sounds amazing. I am really excited to hear more. And uh, from from all of us here at Relative Disasters, happy Pride happy Month. Happy Pride Month. Yeah.